Welcome back, everyone. We have some breaking news. Disney stock, as we know, has not been doing well over the past year and a half. It has not been magical. The company stock price is down 49% from its all-time high. And even over longer time periods, the five years, the 10 years, Disney is basically flat. It's underperformed the S&P 500 by a huge margin. And for a lot of investors, this has been perplexing because Disney's one of the it's one of the strongest, most unique, dominant consumer brands in the world, and it's been underperforming its peers. It's been underperforming the market. It's been doing terrible. I own Disney stock. I've owned it in my dividend growth portfolio, and it doesn't even pay a dividend anymore. It has been my single worst holding, the single worst performing one in that entire portfolio. But Disney investors may have a rescuer here. His name is Nelson Peltz, and he is a billionaire activist investor. Now, Nelson, like lots of other investors, doesn't like what he sees going on with Disney. He actually wrote a very critical presentation, this slide deck called Disney Restoring the Magic by Trian Partners, who is Nelson Peltz's firm. This goes through and just details all the things that Disney's done. Their massive compensation packages for executives, paying themselves hundreds of millions of dollars that isn't linked to performance. Their bad acquisitions, overpaying for the Fox deal. Their bloated cost structure, costs going up faster than the rate of revenue. He's highlighting a lot of problems in this slide deck that we're going to look at. And he believes that he can be the solution. He thinks he can turn this company around. And he has a long history of doing just that. He's been an activist investor in a lot of other consumer brands, companies like Disney. And he's been able to get the company in shape and back on track. And he has a very good track record. Very good at turning these type of companies around. So we're going to go through this slide deck. And it is a detailed assessment of Disney. This is the single best piece of research I've seen on Disney in the past year. It gives a clear illustration of everything that's gone wrong with the company and what he thinks he can do to help fix this. So we're going to be going through that. And just for the record, before we even get into it, I am firmly on Nelson Peltz's side. I think he should get a board seat. I think he should be involved in Disney. And right away... Disney does not like this. Disney doesn't want any changes. Disney executives said on Wednesday afternoon in a statement that they're opposed to having him join the board seat. They don't even want him to have one seat. They don't want him to be involved in the company at all. Why wouldn't they want him to join the board of the company? Well, obviously right now, everything's working out well for the insiders of the company. Executives are getting paid. Employees are getting paid. It's the shareholders that are being hurt. So having said that, let's go ahead and jump into this. This is going to be a good one. I think this one is going to be chock full of information. And if you're looking at potentially investing in Disney, I think this is a good starting point because this really does frame where the company is and what direction it could possibly go. Now, before we get into the slide deck presentation, I first want to go to a interview clip with Nelson Peltz. This is just today. And you can kind of meet him and get to know who's fighting on your behalf as a Disney shareholder. And I truly, truly believe that is the case. There's some investors, some activist investors that are really short-term focused. They're more like vultures where they come in and they just want a quick price bump in a stock and then they're out. Nelson Peltz is not that type of person. He has a very long-term orientation. He is focused on a five, six, seven year period with a company and he has the history to prove that. So I don't view this guy as a vulture. I don't view him as a bad investor. I think he is on behalf of investors trying to do something positive for Disney. He's trying to hold them accountable. So let's first go ahead and play this clip where he explains why he picked Disney. 
changing a quote from a famous movie with my first question. Of all the companies and all the industries and all the world, you got to walk into Disney. Why? Why Disney? And why you? David, good morning. And good morning, Jim. Why not? We, we have skin in the game. You know, we look at a company and we look at Disney and we say that this is the most advantaged consumer company on the planet. And we love it. That's the reason why we're here. However, the TSR, the total shareholder return over one, three, five, ten years has materially underperformed the S&P. That right there is a good enough reason for an activist investor to get involved. When you have a company like Disney with the brand value, with the franchise, with the moat that Disney has. Everybody agrees that Disney has a wide moat with their parks and they underperform the index in the one year, the three year, the five year, and the 10 year. It's time for someone to step in and just go, what's going on here? You're not doing well for shareholders. There's companies that are much, they're not as impressive of companies. We got companies like Dollar General beating Disney to pieces. So we have this, this wide moat company with IP, with all these unique assets just getting crushed by the market. Let's go ahead and go through this presentation here. Disney is the most advantaged consumer company in the world. It has unrivaled global scale, irreplaceable brands, inimitable parks, and can leverage the Disney flywheel to monetize its intellectual property. For these reasons, we believe the company is well positioned to succeed. I agree with this. This is the initial thesis of Disney. However, Disney's recent share price and operating performance have been disappointing. Total shareholder returns has materially underperformed the S&P 500 and proxy pairs over the one-year, three-year, five-year, and 10-year periods. Disney shares are currently trading at an eight-year low. Operating performance has deteriorated, including 50% decline in adjusted EPS, from financial 2018. We believe the current investor sentiment on Disney is at an all-time low, I would agree with that, reflecting the hard truth that Disney is a company in crisis and faces many challenges that weigh on the company's investment prospects. While we acknowledge that Disney, like many media companies, is undergoing challenges pivoting to streaming, we believe that many of the company's current problems are self-inflicted and need to be addressed. This is true as well. Disney will try to say, we're just in a transitional period, we're going to streaming, and they're trying to do that to mask all the self-inflicted wounds they've given themselves. There's lots of companies transitioning to streaming. Disney has made some huge blunders to make this much, much worse than it needs to be. Trium believes that it is well positioned to facilitate positive changes at Disney, given our experience investing in and serving on the board of directors of blue chip companies and working collaboratively with management teams and boards to optimize corporate governance, strategy, operations, and capital allocation. They say that they realize Disney is undergoing a lot of changes quickly, and they're not trying to create additional instability by replacing Bob Iger. So the way that Disney will try to defend this is say that uh, Nelson Peltz is coming in and he's causing more havoc and chaos and investors should be worried. This activist investor is coming in to even screw things up. That's what they'll try to do. That will be Disney's defense here. This is just causing more of a ruckus and more problems. Not the case. What he's asking for is very reasonable. And he has a history to show that he doesn't cause a stir. He doesn't screw up companies by coming in and leaving them. Disney's trading at an eight-year low. We can look at this price performance chart. It's just miserable. This is a completely miserable price performance chart. The same price since 2015. 2015, eight years from now. 
And even so, it's not like investors are happy to buy the dip. Most of them are incredibly discouraged. So we're at an eight-year low, and it doesn't feel the same as some other companies that are are dipping down. This isn't like Google or Microsoft or Amazon that's dipping. This is where investors are very discouraged with Disney. Uh, So we have some problems here. Now, the next two pages, I'm not going to go over all of them. It's basically trying to present that they are not vulture capitalists. They don't come in and try to do quick bumps in stock prices that are at the long-term detriment of the company. What they've proven throughout their track record is they hold companies on average for six years. The average retail investor holds a company for five months. So they are very long-term oriented. And their performance while holding companies that they're actively involved in is very good, market beating by 900 basis points per year. So they have a huge, uh, long track record of outperformance with their activist investors. From the data, there is nothing I can find of why Disney has any reasonable excuse to not allow them to have a board member. It just doesn't make sense. The only reason I could see why is for selfish reasons from Disney that they don't want to have accountability, that they don't want anyone telling them what to do, even if it is a big shareholder of the company. Disney consistently underperforms. Disney's 10-year performance here, it's given a total return of 107%. The S&P 500 has given you twice as much. And then companies proxy pairs. I'm not sure what these are, but I would assume like Comcast, uh, other, other media companies have given a total return of 478%. So even relative performance to their industry, they can't use that excuse either. And these are the pairs that Disney picks, not that Trium picks, not that Nelson Peltz. These are Disney's pairs that they pick as their pairs, and they're underperforming them widely. We look at the five-year, they're down 10% on the five-year. The company's pairs are up 26%, and the S&P 500 is up 56%. And then this, this just goes on every time frame. The three-year, the same thing. They're down 34%, uh, 25% below their pairs, and 60% below the S&P 500. On the one year, they are down 39% in the past year. So zooming in, zooming out, doesn't matter which way you splice it. Disney is underperforming persistently. Disney's financial performance has been disappointing. This is a case where it's not just the stock that's underperforming. It's not just multiple compression. The company's operating performance has been incredibly poor. The only thing that they're really growing is revenue. So we have revenue growth here. That's great. But again, revenue growth isn't profitability. $24 billion revenue increase driven by the 21st Century Fox deal. So this is done by acquisitions. It's easy to buy revenue. Companies can do something called buying revenue where they just buy more companies, that grows the revenue, but they have to dilute the shareholder to do that. So even though it looks good on paper because revenue is going up, they diluted you. You don't own as much of that revenue. So this 41% revenue gain for buying Fox, this was done by a lot of dilution and a ton of debt. Now they have interest payments. So it was not accretive to the investor. This didn't benefit the investor at all. Even though the revenue has gone up 41%, their costs have gone up 66%. So costs are outpacing revenue, which means the margins are going down. $22 billion increases in costs of goods sold and a 990 basis point increase as a percentage of revenue. So costs are growing as a percentage of revenue. We have sales general and administrative going up 85%, outpacing revenue. We have the adjusted EBITDA margins here. Look at the EBITDA margins. They've gone from 30% to 16%. 
margins are being cut in half, going down 23% since 2018. They, they point this out as a critical part of the company. Again, we have the free cash flow here. Uh, free cash flow conversion of revenue went from 16.5% to 1.3%, down 89%. Adjusted earnings per share, down 50%. Adjusted dilution per share, 21%. Dividends per share, well, that just uh, completely got scrapped. So that's down 100%. And then the net leverage, the amount of debt the company has, has increased by 187%. Every single operating metric that you can really look at, aside from revenue, has gone in the wrong direction. And the revenue, again, was not accretive because it was a bolt-on with massive amounts of debt and with dilution. It did not benefit the shareholder at all. And most of that leverage is caused by the Fox acquisition, which he talks about even further in this presentation here. And they even highlight that this is not Bob Chapek's issue. While Bob Iger just rejoined the board, he has essentially served on the board since 2000 with only a short respite from January, 10 months. So basically the story right now is that Disney, uh, it was in trouble when Bob Iger left and now it's going to be saved because Bob Iger is back. And what Nelson Peltz is doing here is pointing out that, first of all, even with Bob Iger at the helm and even with him giving most of the direction here, Disney still underperformed. Bob Iger is not doing a good job and not nearly as good of a job as he's getting praise for. Furthermore, he's also making the, uh, the argument here that Bob Iger never really left. The guy was gone for 10 months. Bob Chapek, for as uh, unflattering and uncharming of an individual as he was in the role, and he was not a good pick, still, he was kind of a scapegoat, in my opinion, for Bob Iger in a lot of ways. He took a lot of blame of things that Bob Iger did enact. He says here that there are still several current directors and members of management who oversaw and approved some of the Disney's some of Disney's worst corporate governance and strategic failures, including overpaying for the Fox acquisition, the expanding streaming losses, and the over-the-top compensation packages granted to Bob Iger. Bob Iger has been overpaid. That is uh, abundantly clear. Look at the performance here. Here is their tenure. So they're there for a couple of years. We have Bob Iger at the top there with 22 years. Then the total shareholder return. This is dividends and capital appreciation since their tenure. Uh, and then the total shareholder return, then the S&P 500's total return over that same time period. In every single case, every single one of these directors has been over Disney during a time period where the S&P 500 has beat Disney. Bob Iger by 63%. Uh, Susan Arnold by 37%. 124%. 128%, right? It's just all different percentages. So basically, Nelson's highlighting here that the executive team is not getting the job done. They're not beating the S&P 500. Your opportunity cost is the market. If a company is perpetually underperforming the market, there's no reason to own that company. It's not rewarding investors. We have Disney materially overpaying for the Fox assets. When I originally invested in Disney, I saw the operating leverage of their, their initial IP. My initial video showed the trailer of The Mandalorian, the first Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. That one show, just that show, I think got 10, 20, 30 million subscribers to Disney+. Plus. The initial IP of just The Mandalorian. They did not need to buy Fox for $52 billion to get Disney Plus as a successful streaming service. But that's what they ended up doing anyways. They say the Fox deal creates a massive incremental goodwill balance of $50 billion. Disney had to rely on ultra-aggressive $2 billion energy assumptions, or synergy assumptions, rather. That's where they'll be able to cross-sell and do all this crazy stuff to justify the purchase. 
most of the time with acquisitions, I do not like relying on synergy as part of the acquisition. More often than not, the synergies don't happen. They say which would imply a doubling of Fox's EBITDA to justify the deal. So they bought Fox on the assumption that synergy would cause a doubling in EBITDA, and just the opposite happened. While difficult to quantify, they say that we believe Fox's earnings power have deteriorated post-deal, implying an even higher multiple paid than the 26.5x. And here's a chart showing their expectation. Disney's right here, their, their Fox acquisition, they think it's going to be like right here. Uh, they think synergies is going to make it even worth more, right? Synergy. They're going to work together and cross-sell and all these things. And it's going to be right here. And, and then what happened to it? This is what happened to the EBITDA 3.1. Didn't exactly work out. It was a poor acquisition that they overpaid. They had no margin of safety with it. The Fox acquisition increased Disney's leverage dramatically. Investors are still paying for the Fox deal as Disney works to reduce its leverage. Disney is also expecting to buy Comcast's $9 billion stake in Hulu in 2024, which will keep its leverage well above historical levels for years. So if you're thinking that Disney's paying down the debt and it's going to go down, that's true. They're paying it down right now, $50 billion to like $45 billion. Uh, it's going to go right back up because they're buying Hulu. So don't get too excited. They're adding on more debt. And out of my entire portfolios, both the story fund and the passive income portfolio, Disney is the most leveraged company I hold by far. This is something that I don't like. I've moved out of leveraged companies. But here we have Disney, highly levered because of all of these bolt-on acquisitions. Now, another interesting thing they bring up is a deal that was not done. The Sky acquisition that Disney wanted to do. And Nelson basically gives this as an example of Disney having not learned their lesson. They're still trying to buy overpriced assets in the market. They're still trying to buy more content. The bid that they put in for Sky represented a 46% premium to Disney's original offer and a 104% premium to the unaffected Sky share price. Another example of poor merger and acquisition judgment. So luckily for Disney shareholders, this offer wasn't accepted. Comcast purchased it. They had a different reason to do that. But the point stands. Disney's still trying to exercise poor judgment in their merger and acquisitions. Luckily, they couldn't buy this deal, even though they were trying to overpay once again. Here's a Bernstein note on this deal that Disney was eager to do, bidding aggressively for. Quote, we never understood why this lower growth lower return and lower multiple business with undeniable long-term structural risks would enhance Disney's asset mix or contribute to Disney's direct-to-consumer transformation. By allowing Comcast to prevail in the sky bidding war, Disney avoided paying a massive premium for a business which is primarily a European DBS distributor. This wouldn't have benefited Disney at all. There is, in my opinion, no reason they should have been bidding aggressively for this. And other investors realized that as well. But they were. And the outcome of this would have been disastrous. Again, putting more stress on Disney's balance sheet that is already very levered. Had Disney purchased Sky on top of the Fox deal, Disney would have paid $100 billion at a combined trans transaction multiple of 20 times enterprise value to EBITDA. That is incredibly expensive for this type of for this type of company. Pro forma, it would have added $67 billion of net debt to its balance sheet. This would have put Disney's debt over $100 billion. I mean, this is incredible that they're trying to do these deals to just torpedo the company. So, so far, do you agree with the, the arguments that Nelson's making here of poor corporate judgment? 
I do. I think that he's spot on with it. Uh, furthermore, he highlights the cash flows of the company. We can look at the earnings per share here. Now, keep in mind the gray bars here. All of this is fictitious. This is in people's minds and their judgments about the future. What's actually happened? It went from $7 to $3.50. That's the earnings per share. So earnings per share have been decimated. And then there's nice pictures that you can draw on paper about the earnings skyrocketing back up in 2025. But even so, I just want to point out, in 2025, even if they hit all of their projections, which they've historically shown that they're not good at projecting, they're not good at hitting their targets, and they keep revising their own projections downward, but even on, under the assumption that they somehow miraculously hit all of their projections, they're still below where they were in 2018. So essentially, investors are going to be holding this company for, for another three years to get back to the earnings level it was four years ago. That's the big pitch to investors in Disney. The cash flows paint an even worse picture. $9.8 billion in free cash flow in 2018. Right now we're at 1.1 billion. Now, something that they don't mention on this chart, and I can look it up right here. If we bring up Disney on Qualtrum, this is available to Patreon members. It's also important, I think, to factor in stock-based compensation because even though they did 1.07 billion in free cash flow, they also paid their employees with $980 million in stock-based compensation. So the adjusted free cash flow, which we're eventually going to have a chart for that on Qualtrum, where we net these two out, it would be uh, about $70, $80 million. That's what they made in real free cash flows that can be returned to investors, $80 million. So even though this is $1.1 billion in free cash flow, that is overstating the amount of money this leaves to investors. They're essentially not generating any money for investors in 2022. Then we get to the dividend. Disney is one of the most commonly owned retail companies. When I talk to different investors and I have a lot of chats with different retail investors, Disney's one of the go-to investments because it's such a public-facing investment. It's such a long-standing good company with good IP and it paid a dividend. That's something that retail investors look forward to. In fact, a lot of them in retirement really look forward to that dividend. In 2020, Disney eliminated its dividend as it faced cash flow challenges caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, significant streaming investments, and its over-levered balance sheet. Prior to 2020, Disney had paid a dividend for 57 straight years, with an emphasis placed on growing the dividend. So it was a dividend growth company. Disney has not provided a timetable for restoring the dividend beyond achieving pre-Fox leverage levels. So they're saying that we need to get our leverage down and then we'll bring back the dividend. And oh, by the way, we're trying to buy all these different companies to make our leverage go up. So give me a break. Disney's saying, yeah, we'll bring the dividend back when leverage goes down, but we're actively working to make the leverage go back up through all of our, our, our bids on all these mergers and acquisitions. Total uh, double talk, double speak to investors. They're saying one thing to you and then they're doing another. And another thing that I really hate about this dividend and the fact that Disney scrapped it is not the fact that they scrapped the dividend. I don't think that was much of a problem because COVID did shut down all of their parks. And I thought at the time, it makes sense that Disney should halt the dividend. That's what a responsible company should do. One of the companies in my portfolio, I can show you right here, is Texas Roadhouse. This company, it's a restaurant. So when COVID happened, they couldn't even open up their restaurant. All they could do is to go orders. And what they did was they scrapped the dividend. This is the balance sheet. Here's the dividend here. They scrapped the dividend. So we have a dividend payment going from 2020, one quarter, 
But what did Texas Roadhouse do once their company opened back up? Once COVID was done, once they could seat people again in their restaurant, they instantly brought back the dividend and they did a 20% dividend raise. So they said, thank you, shareholders, for holding with us through this troubling, difficult time. By the way, you're getting a big dividend raise and we're returning a lot of capital to you. Everything's back on track. That is good corporate governance. That is relaying the message correctly. What Disney's done is use COVID as an excuse to scrap the dividend when the real reason they can't bring it back is because of their failed merger and acquisition with the Fox asset. So I think it's very disingenuous what the management team is saying. Uh, they're not really highlighting the real reason why they can't bring back the dividend. And then here's another thing that I think is very frustrating which uh, I, I don't like to see from this company. And when I was reading through the letter, I think this is possibly the most disappointing part of this entire uh, slide here. Disney's shareholder engagement process, or lack thereof, is indicative of poor governance. They're not wanting any input from actual investors, long-term investors in their company like Nelson Peltz, people that put a lot of money behind the company because they love Disney, they want it to succeed. In my opinion, they're giving very, very accurate even if it's biting, it's accurate feedback. They don't want anything to do with them. Why did Bob Iger and the board invite Nelson to meet in person three years ago to hear his views on Disney and barely gave him any of the same opportunity three years later? So when times were okay, they will talk to the shareholders. Now they want nothing to do with Nelson Peltz. Now that he's highlighting some problems and things that the management has done poorly, they're in defense mode. They're going to try to paint Nelson Peltz as the bad guy a vulture that's going to come in and stir things up. He says in our view, Disney's shareholders engagement process has been amongst the worst, if not the worst of all the companies we have ever interacted with. Disney's the most reluctant to interact with shareholders. It's important for shareholders to know that Trion has a constructive history with Disney and Bob Iger. In September, 2019, Nelson Peltz spoke with the board at the invitation of Bob Iger about his views on the company. November 2022, Trian started a discussion with Bob Chapek about the challenges and opportunities facing the company and requested a board seat for Nelson. Shortly after the conversation, the board abruptly fired Chapek, and since Mr. Iger was rehired, the company has barely interacted with Nelson. After one short call with management, Disney rejected Nelson's request for a board seat outright. The gall of this company... He calls wanting to just have one board seat, which isn't a huge ask. A lot of activist investors, they want multiple board seats. They want to do hostile takeovers. He wants one. That's not hostile. Having one board seat is not hostile. And they reject his request without even considering it. Notably, Disney did not even allow Nelson to meet any directors prior to turning down his request until we flagged that it was highly questionable of a decision to jump to a decision without hearing us out. I just look at this and I think it's such a poor way to conduct themselves. It reminds me, this type of thing reminds me the same way that Disney reacted to Scarlett Johansson when she sued wanting to get the money she was due for her role. Disney came out and publicly blamed her, saying that she was, uh, you know, questioning her motives and, and made it a big public fiasco. It was embarrassing and showed poor judgment from the company. And here they have an activist investor wanting one board seat they turn him down without even having him meet the board or even hearing what he wants to say. Um, in every engagement where Trion has asked for board representation, we were invited in-person meetings and extensive interviews with management and the board. That is normally how it should go. If an inner, if a investor 
comes with legitimate concerns about a company, the board should entertain those concerns. They should have the feedback. That's the sign of a good company, one that wants feedback on how to better run the business. But they're totally, it's like they have an immune defense to it. We don't want to hear anything from anyone else. Disney has failed to execute a succession plan, one of the most important responsibilities of a public company. So now we have the problem of a key figure. Disney's relying on Bob Iger now. In November 20th, Disney announced that Bob Iger was rehired as CEO, effective immediately less than three years after he stepped down, but he remained the executive chairman. Now, what Nelson's going to do here is make the argument that he really never left, and that was the problem to begin with. The fact that Bob Chapek was abruptly fired five months after the board unanimously agreed to extend his contract by three years suggests that the board lacks a robust CEO succession process and completely misread the state of Disney and Bob Chapek's performance. This again shows that they're not good at forecasting the future at all. They're not having good judgment. They all unanimously agreed to extend Bob Chapek's contract for three years and then they fired him almost immediately after that. Why was Bob Chapek ever made CEO to begin with? Remember that Bob Chapek was the operator of the parks. That's what's, that was his role. He never worked on the media side and the production side. And Disney was realigning its entire focus into the production side, the streaming business. So they took someone that was a parks operator and made him in control of something that he had no experience with. Good job, Disney management. Now we have another quote here that I think is just embarrassing for Disney. This one comes from Susan Arnold the chair of the board. She's one of the longest time board members. June 28th, 2022. This was recent. Quote, Disney was dealt a tough hand by the pandemic. Yet with Bob Chapek at the helm, our business from parks to streaming, not only weathered the storm, but emerged in a position of strength. In this important time of growth and transformation, the board is committed to keeping Disney on the successful path it is on today. And Bob's leadership is key to achieving that goal. Bob Chapek, not the new Bob Iker. Bob Chapek is the right leader at the right time for the Walt Disney Company. And the board has full confidence in him and his leadership team. Just singing the praises of Bob Chapek right before they fire him and then blame him, giving him as a scapegoat. This is not good management. Praising someone, putting him in a position, watching over him, putting him in a position where he's basically destined to fail and then firing him and then pointing the finger at him is not good leadership. Furthermore, the company's profits going down by 50% and then boasting about how well Disney's doing does not build a lot of confidence for the shareholder. If you're a shareholder right now, you know things are not going well with Disney. And if you're a shareholder and you realize that the board of directors thinks things are going well with Disney, well, that's a problem because we're on different pages. I view Disney as not doing well. Susan here is viewing Disney as doing just amazing. It's doing great. Uh, agree to disagree there. Now, what they point out here, I think the major point is when Bob Iger left, the Disney board uh, they appointed him as the executive chairman for the following two years, which in and of itself is kind of risky. They pointed out as being very risky. I've seen it work sometimes. Jeff Bezos is the executive chairman of Amazon. But in this case, it was it was bad. This was a bad decision because it set up his successor to fail with the prior CEO constantly watching over his shoulders. That is exactly what transpired. We've seen all of these different uh, different articles showing how Bob Chapek and Bob Iger grew to hate each other. How did this feud start? 
Well, right after Bob Iger stepped down, we had COVID and they had a disagreement on how to run things during COVID. And what happened was Bob Iger went on interviews and said, yeah, you know, with all of this COVID, I really have had to step in and make sure things run smoothly. I'm still kind of involved and I'm making sure Disney's doing a good job. And Bob Chapek is over there saying, you just put me in as a CEO and you're already discrediting my work. You're saying that I can't handle running this company through the pandemic. So right there, they butted heads. And ever since that point in time, when Bob Iger was still involved in the company, bragging about running it and saving it through COVID, that caused bad blood. And so you have two people in charge of the company. One is the executive CEO, one of the executive chairman, and you have both of them having major disagreements. Not like Jeff Bezos, who he's the executive chairman, but Jeff Bezos, he he went off on his, his private yacht. He has a city-sized cruise ship personal uh, boat that he's on. You know, he's doing things outside of the company. He's not really focused on it anymore. He might receive a call once or twice a week from Andy Jassy on what to do in certain situations, but Jeff Bezos has never undermined what Andy Jassy has done. Jeff Bezos has never questioned Andy Jassy's executive role and what he's doing there. So I really think this does set up an argument that the entire executive team at Disney, the entire board of directors really set up Bob Chapek to fail. They put him in a position he should have never been put in. They let him take the fall. They fired him at the absolute bottom of the stock price. And they have Bob Iger coming back to save the day when Bob Iger never really left. He was interfering with Bob Chapek's tenure, every single part of it. Every single day, he was involved in the day-to-day dealings. He had luncheons with other executives. He explained publicly and privately all the things he thought that Bob Chapek was doing wrong. He basically stood, stood on the sidelines and just sat there and complained at Bob Chapek and undermined his ability to lead. So that was not a good succession plan at all. And I don't think that Bob Iger should be flawless and blameless in what went on there. And on this note, it's frustrating that while this is happening, all this mismanagement bloated cost structure and failed M&A, we have the company's CEO, Bob Iger, receiving $216 million in total compensation despite Disney's poor total stock performance. And here it shows, I think, the egregious amount that Bob Iger has been paid compared to the performance of the stock. $36 million, $65 million, $47 million a year, $21 million a year, $45 million a year. His total pay package of what he wanted was $423 million for a company that has underperformed both its peers and the S&P 500. Now we're getting through this, but this still doesn't end. There's more problems to highlight. And again, I don't think think he's cherry picking or trying to find problems. He's just highlighting what's going on with the business here. And like I said before, I fully agree with Nelson Peltz. I am personally thankful that someone like him is going in and fighting this battle. Activist investors don't need to do this. He could just save the trouble, not have the fight, go on to a passive investment, but instead he's trying to work on behalf of shareholders that can't do it for themselves. I do not have the capital to be able to sway Disney. So someone like him that does and does it in a good positive way on behalf of the shareholders, I think is very, uh, it's something that's good. It's good on behalf of even ETF holders. If you old you hold an index fund, this is a good thing for you. Improving the performance of this company will improve the performance of your index fund. So even if you're not directly invested in Disney, it's still good that people like this exist that are doing this work on your behalf. Because otherwise, you have a system where executives and the board of directors are lining their pockets with 
boatloads of cash while the company is bloated and underperforming. Not a good situation for the equity markets. Now, this next part, this goes in to Disney's streaming strategy, and it highlights a lot of the differences between Disney and Netflix. So I think this is both informative, important to pay attention to if you're looking at anything in the streaming industry, because it, again, it highlights some very key key pieces of information here. Disney's streaming strategy, ready, fire, then aim. We are concerned with how Disney's streaming strategy has evolved under the board's oversight. While we believe Disney Plus started as a niche, direct-to-consumer extension of Disney's franchise flywheel, it has rapidly shifted to the core distribution channel for the majority of Disney's intellectual property, leading Disney to significantly ramp up investment to drive new subscriber growth at all costs. So basically, Disney Plus went from this this little outlet to get some premium content. It was highly cost-effective. It leveraged their brand IP. And now Disney's trying their hardest to turn it into a Netflix-like all content, good and bad, uh, all qualities of content, just massive amounts of content. They're trying to play Netflix's game, and Netflix is much better at playing their game than Disney is. And Disney should stay in their lane and play the game that they're good at. Their subscribers have 3 x but their content spend has 4 x and their profitability guidance has no change at all. So what is the rationale behind this when it's not accretive to profitability whatsoever? Disney has lost $11 billion in streaming to date with more losses coming. Since 2017, Disney has lost a cumulative $11 billion in streaming business. The last number I heard was $8 billion, so every quarter they're just losing billions more. Management expects the streaming business to break even in 2024, which means two more years of expected losses. Now here's the problem. This looks very Netflix-like. These numbers, billions and billions of cash flow going into the direct-to-consumer business, which is all of Netflix, but Netflix had a reason for doing this. First of all, Netflix operated in a time with very cheap capital. So they could get very cheap debt, super low interest rates, and they could spend their money very effectively through licensing other people's content. But Netflix also had to build their own intellectual property library. They couldn't leverage big franchises. They couldn't leverage Star Wars. So Netflix had to outspend because of the lack of intellectual property. They had to make up for it by producing a ton of content and trying to create franchises from thin air, like Stranger Things. That is a much more difficult task. Disney is advantaged. They shouldn't have to spend the same way Netflix does to get the same results. And again, I take you back to The Mandalorian. When that first season of Mandalorian was advertised, everybody in the United States wanted to watch it. They only needed one show to sell a $10 a month subscription, and people paid for it for three months to watch one show. That is leverage with IP. Disney has abandoned that strategy. They say Disney does not leverage its substantial scale in streaming. Disney is guiding to direct-to-consumer operating profit of break-even in 2024. By the way, Netflix is already break-even, so Disney's two years behind Netflix in terms of break-even. Um, when the market expects the business to generate $29 billion of revenue, we are surprised that Disney's best-in-class intellectual property franchises and scale have not led to inline, if not superior, unit economics compared with Netflix, which generally lacks the high-quality franchise IP. That is the argument against Netflix all the time. They have no intellectual property. Um, I think things are changing. I think Netflix has proven 
that it can fabricate. It can come up with intellectual property out of thin air. And I think there's plenty of examples of that. But regardless, we go into this. This is, I think, one of the most interesting slides here. Disney's direct-to-consumer segment in billions. Here's the margins of it. 21%, uh, minus 21% margins, minus 14% margins, minus 3% margins. And then in 2025, barely break even. 2.7% positive margins. So they have to go all the way to the end of 2024. And then finally in 2025, they'll barely break even with their streaming service. At similar scale of minus 3.6% margins, Netflix has 18.2% margins. Netflix is a much more cost-effective business with their content than Disney. Let me repeat that. Netflix is leveraging their content and their spend on content more effectively than Disney. Now, again, there's lots of opinions and arguments on Netflix. I'm aware that it's not a popular investment. I don't think really anybody I know likes the investment besides me. But I look at Netflix and I think that the argument that they don't have intellectual property, they have no shows people really want to watch. I think Stranger Things proves that wrong. Uh, The Witcher Wednesday was a massive global hit. They're going to be doing season after season of that. That's one of their most watched shows. In fact, most of their most watched shows just came out last year. Dahmer, those type of shows always do really well for Netflix. They have massive documentaries. They have comedy specials. They have things like Squid Game international successes that come out of Korea, and I think there's going to be more of those as well. So the idea that Netflix doesn't have any content that people want to watch, I think is just, it's its something, it's a narrative that will never end. I don't think people will ever be convinced otherwise, no matter what the numbers say, how many huge breakout successes Netflix has. I don't think they're ever going to change that narrative. Um, but regardless, we have the data here basically proving that Netflix is more effective with their content spend than Disney. Disney's current streaming strategy is leading to inefficiencies. Netflix generates 61% more revenue than Disney in streaming. Okay, Netflix spends 34% more on programming and production costs than Disney. So Netflix spends 34% more to generate 61% more revenue. Netflix spends 30% less on other expenses than Disney. They're literally spending less to generate far more revenue. They are much more cost-effective than Disney on the streaming front. And Netflix EBITDA margins are 4,000 basis points higher than Disney. We have the EBITDA margins of Netflix right now at 18.2%. For Disney, it's minus 21.9%, which is a 40% difference. I think with observing the streaming industry over the past three years, it's shown that what Netflix has accomplished already, in my opinion, is much more difficult than what most investors are making it out to be getting to scale, becoming profitable on a free cash flow basis, even adjusted for stock-based compensation, is incredibly difficult. Even with the power, the intellectual property, even with the parks subsidizing it, Disney's not even close to Netflix. Not even close. They are underpricing their service compared to Netflix. They are subsidizing the costs. They're throwing their free cash flow in the negative, losing $11 billion so far with two years of projected losses, and they're still not even close to Netflix. All of that effort just to try to catch up to them. Despite management's rhetoric, we believe Disney has never thoroughly reviewed its cost structure as evidenced by the fact that over the last three years, costs have outpaced sales by 400 basis points. Sales have gone up 6%. That's the revenue of the company. Costs have gone up 10%. When costs are outscaling sales, you're not becoming more operationally efficient. 
you're becoming more bloated. Now we have the one good part about Disney, the thing that's actually going well so far, which is the parks, but there's even arguments against that. He's making the case here that the parks are over earning. And I think this is part of uh, Chapek. He went in and he basically raised prices to the max with the park, really squeezing Disney customers, nickeling and diming. You have to have the, the Disney, uh, what is it? The genie thing where you have to pay $20 per person per day. On top of that, there's extra rides. You have to pay extra to skip the lines. Uh, the prices of everything in the park have gone up. The park attendance has become a different experience because it's becoming very expensive. And even though that works in the short term, raising prices, it's a dangerous strategy in the long term. Disney has historically relied on price to drive growth and margins at domestic parks, which we believe is an unsustainable growth strategy, continually just raising price after raising price. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, Disney's domestic parks had grown per capita guest spend at a 6% compound annual growth rate. That's from 2011 to 2019, with more muted attendance growth. This has shifted dramatically, with management noting that per capita spending grew nearly 40% in fiscal 2019. So the price people are paying in the parks, on average, since 2011 to 2019 was 6%, and then it went up 40% in a single year. That is incredible. All of a sudden, the parks got dramatically more expensive. And here we have the highlighted problem that Disney has become dependent on their parks to fund the rest of their business. This is not a good situation to be in. They're basically relying on it. They can't lower prices because it's paying all the bills, paying down their debt, paying all their interest expense, paying for all the streaming CapEx spend. A lot of that is coming from the parks. From 2019, it was 30%. Now it's 44%. Not a good situation to be in. So overall, again, in my opinion, I was reading through this and I thought these criticisms weren't only warranted, I thought they were excellent. I think that his analysis of the company and the problems with it are dead on. There's a reason why Disney is rejecting Nelson Peltz. There's a reason why they're gonna try to convince you that it's not in your interest to have him on the board. But don't be fooled. If you're a Disney investor, you want Nelson Peltz on the board. You want him to get things into shape because the company so far has been run in a way that benefits the CEO, benefits the directors, but does not benefit the shareholders. And that needs to change. So in my opinion, I'm gonna look for Nelson Peltz to get his board seat. I want him on the board. And honestly, I'm, I'm at the point now with Disney that I've seen so much mismanagement. I've been looking for an exit with this company, looking for a little bit better of a bid from the market. If Disney successfully rejects Nelson Pelt's board seat and he's not able to get in and actually help this company and he just bails out and says, okay, they don't want my help, I'm probably gonna sell my shares. Uh, that'll probably be the point where I say there's other companies I can invest in. But if he is able to get on this company, he has a very good track record of turning these type of companies around. So I'm going to wait and see right now. I've held Disney for a long period of time. It's not my biggest holding by any means, but it's a company that I still think has a ton of potential that's being unmet. And if Nelson Peltz is able to make the company go in a better direction, I'll continue to hold my shares. So that's my thoughts so far. I hope you enjoyed this little update. See you in the next one.